Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly. Coming up on today's episode, it's back. The Times Radio Focus Group with Ket CNC. James Johnson's back in the chair as well. Speak to a panel of swing voters, asking what they think of the party leaders, Partygate, Putin, other things not beginning with P. Uh, I have to say, if you are a Tory leadership uh, possible contender listening to the podcast, I don't think you're going to like it. Anyway, uh, that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel. And on a Thursday, it's Night at the Marriott, it's India Night and James Marriott. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yeah, it's official. It's official now. They've got their own jingle. James Marriott's here in the studio. How are you, James? I feel so important after that jingle. It's really uh, boosted my self-esteem this morning. (laughs) And that's important because we know your self-esteem is very important. Uh, And morning, India. Delirious with joy at the jingle. (laughs) That's a turn up. I know. We've we've, 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 we've splashed out. Uh, uh, Everyone's got jingles now. There's jingles and music everywhere you look now. It's lovely. Lovely. Right, well, nice, nice to have you both here. Nice because we've not, we've not, we've not all been together for a few weeks now. So that's it's nice. It's nice, it's nice to be back. It's nice. Uh, let's talk uh, about uh, um, uh, what's going on in the House of Commons. Uh, <laughs> what do you make of it, India? It's a gross story. Um, the, the the porn I'm referring to. Yeah. But you know, it's it's very strange. This thing of watching porn in public. It's happened to me a couple of times on the train. Um, and not, you know, not the train at 11 o'clock at night, the train at sort of quarter past 10 in the morning. And it ha- it's happened twice. One was a really nice looking, pleasant, fresh faced young man in his, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s. One was a mid one. The second time was a middle aged man. Um, and it occurred to me because I was so astonished by it. And I know from friends that it's happened to them on the tube or on the bus or, you know, in various public places. And obviously, it's not about the porn, I don't think, as as in the commons. I don't think it was necessarily about the porn. It seems to me that it's about making people, specifically women, feel grossly uncomfortable. And the power you have over somebody to make them feel uncomfortable is kind of the point of the thing. And it's really weird you know, it's sort of psychologically really a strange thing to do. Because obviously, if you want to watch porn, you can watch porn, you know, in private in your office or wherever, if that's the urge you have at a particular time of day. But to do it in a public place in view of other, in view of women, because I don't think this MP would have done it surrounded by men, is a particular thing that's really revolting. I mean, there is, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I just don't, I just, that thing of, I just don't know what the plan is, James. You want to be seen to be doing it. That's what's but so do, weird. It seems, that, it seems that, like that a seems terrible weird. kind of tactical decision of, because, I mean, are there any rooms in the world that have more cameras in the House of Commons? And can you not, I don't know, do you not sort of, when you're, when you're sitting there watching, watching your pornography in the House of Commons, speculate upon an unfolding series of consequences that might end in some way badly for you? I mean, is that... I don't know. It just—it seems like a very given that bad people have been choice. ridiculed for like shutting their eyes, or you know, in Jacob Rees-Mogg's <laughs> case, la- lounging on the on the on the bench, having been caught. You know, they weren't speaking, so but they were caught on camera. It just seems. I, I, yeah, it's one of those things where it, I, I find it so incomprehensible. Do you know who it is, Matt? Go on. I mean, do, do I know? No, 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 do I, I know, know who it is? is. Yeah, no, no, there were, when I was in Westminster yesterday, there, were, there was clearly lots of speculation. It was the only thing anyone was talking about uh, in Parliament. And I think uh, people do know who the female MPs are who've made the complaint, although they haven't, mm. obviously haven't spoken out publicly. And the point that James is making, what people are doing is discovering when those people were in the House of Commons and just scrolling, I would expect, if not by, if not tomorrow, then by the weekend. Mm-hmm. 
someone would have scrolled through a sufficient amount of parliamentary yeah. uh, video coverage to mm. establish who the culprit is. Because presumably, it, I, don't, I don't know, but I don't think it was during PMQs. You know, actually, outside PMQs, for large parts, the Commons is basically empty. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think at least one, if not both, of the people who've made a complaint are ministers. So you can sort of work out when they were there and that sort of thing. So it just seems a completely absurd... It's a slightly frightening reminder of what kind of weird people, some, some MPs evidently are as well. You kind of, yeah. I don't know, you think maybe naively, um, as not a political journalist, that you've elected these, you know, at least if mad in some ways, you know, upstanding in some ways sort of people. And actually they just... It's very weird. People are just well, like India's sort of India's people. India's weirdos in the train are sort of the people in Parliament. It's a kind of odd thought. Yeah, people are just weird, aren't they? That's the problem. That's the problem. If they were more like us, James. Exactly, uh, James. Let's talk about your column because there's only so much we can we can wring out of that particular awfulness. Um, uh, why success in life is the art of the possible. And actually, there was a bit, was a bit of overlap because I think people who, as children, decide they're going to be prime minister or president are a bit odd. Yes. Um, exa- yeah, exactly. And there's so many, I mean, there's so many examples, because I kind of start the column with talking about people who go on to be, who go on to be very successful in later life, who have basically said, as children, I'm going to be president, I'm going to be prime minister. And the more you look into it, it's like, I mean, it's like virtually everyone. Um, and people in really kind of, um, you know, apparently very like distant, very distant positions from the exalted places they end up have decided as Barack Obama did at the age of nine when he was at a junior school in Indonesia, he said he was going to be president of the United States, which is a kind of really, <laughs> just, I don't know, nothing about his circumstances would have seemed to suggest that was going to happen. Macron was saying this, Boris Johnson obviously wanted to be world king. Um, someone pointed out to me on Twitter, uh, Lin- Lyndon Johnson, um, who grew up in complete poverty in um, in, t- in Texas, in uh, in the United States, and I think, you know, one point was like, you know, working really kind of rough jobs on the roads and stuff was telling other people doing this like horrendous backbreaking manual labor in the middle of nowhere that one day he's going to be president. And I guess the column was basically saying um, to have had that, if you want to go and be a very successful, to be one of the very, very small number of people who have that thought is a really important precondition um, to have it early. Um, is a very important precondition of eventually becoming successful. And then it was just kind of trying to work out, well, where does that thought come from for people? How do you... Because I think these people being very distant from actual power were kind of in like a very kind of weird... Mentally and imaginatively, they they were quite close to it. And it was like, how do they get into that position of thinking they were very close to being president of the United States, even though they were obviously very far away from it. And actually, it's quite helpful to think in those terms if you want to be successful, basically. Sorry, that's a bit rambly. well, no, it's, it's, it's interesting, um, uh, India, that sort of psychological leap you have to make. And actually, maybe you need to, although as in the case with Joe Biden, it, it took him quite a long time to fulfil his... Uh, yeah, the fa- his, I know, uh, the fact he was planning to be president <laughs> in college 50 years ago. <laughs> real, uh, real long-term, really long-term The whole strategy. of America, like, right, fine, okay, <laughs> You can fine. do it, fine. <laughs> Stop going on about it, fine. <laughs> what do you think, India? Um, I think that probably... What some of these people, if not all of them, have in common um, are parents who have the imagination to say, yes, that's fine. Good idea. Go for it. Rather than don't be ridiculous um, to their small um, to their small child who's saying that they want to be prime minister or, or, or whatever. I think there's a real tendency um, to squash down. I think we do far too much squashing down of children's improbable dreams and we urge them to be kind of to think practically much too early and so I mean I don't know it may be that these people are so self-starting and and resilient that you know they're going to plough their furrow regardless but I think having I imagine Obama's mother for example would have wholly encouraged him in his ambition in the way that I didn't, for example, when my um, eldest son used to say that he wanted to play for Manchester United. Um, You know, I used to kind of give reality checks and think this was useful. And actually, it wasn't really useful. It just sort of made him feel a bit sad. Um, So I think very few people achieve what they set out to achieve completely, completely on their own. They're rare beasts. But I think children who are encouraged 
and not kind of shoved in a direction that they don't particularly want to go in have a far better chance of um, of, of succeeding. It's really interesting, that idea, James. At what point does reality have to set in? Because in a way that... Because there used to be a sort of endless supply of columns about how awful the X Factor was or whatever for giving people what Britain's got yeah. to giving people false hope that that's what they're going to end up doing. And actually, a bit of false hope's all right, isn't it? Yeah, I think it, it can sustain you a bit. Um, and I mean, I because I, I, I just think like the thought of I might be massively successful doesn't occur to a lot of people. And if it, if it does, they kind of write it off. What I kind of ended up thinking was. Um, that a lot of what these people have in common, if you really kind of bury it into their lives, is there is some kind of connection. And I, I don't think it's a matter of necessarily of like contacts or, or or money or anything like that. But you remember that although Obama was at this sort of private school in Indonesia, sorry, this um, junior school in Indonesia, then in Hawaii, and seemed a million miles away from politics, his dad was a Kenyan politician, and he'd have heard about that. And mm. the thought, the thought would have been there. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's another good example. Grew up in like. Um, you know, real poverty, but his dad had once been a congressman and he had this kind of, like, mental proximity to the idea of politics that most people simply don't have. The the other example that I kind of thought about, thinking about social mobility, was the novelist um, Thomas Hardy, who in terms of, like, sheer going from, like, nothing to wealth in the 19th century, like, few people went further. And I was sort of thinking about an early friendship he had with a kind of, you know, middle-class literary man, not the kind of person he'd ever have met in his ordinary life as the son of a Dorset stonemason, but kind of that sudden, like, proximity to another kind of world, that kind of mental leap that it can, like, that you can jump over by suddenly knowing someone or knowing of someone um, who connects you to that world, I think, is the kind of, is the important factor of that kind of imaginative jump. The, the thing... Like... The... No, go on, India. I was going to say, it's the kind of audacity of self-belief, isn't it? Which is another thing that we frown upon. If somebody marches around saying, I'm going to be a famous novelist, people go, shut up about becoming a famous novelist or a famous astronaut or a famous chef. You know, sure, stop talking, have modest and seemly ambitions in line with your capabilities. So again, I think, you know, it's quite a British thing, isn't it? It's sort of show-off-y and a bit kind of vulgar i suppose to, is there to, a difference between i'm going to be famous and i'm go maybe we should encourage success rather than fame is that is that is there was because i'm going to be a successful author is different to i'm going to be a mm. famous author or a fake you know maybe maybe fame mm. is the that's the way the x factor thinking the main thing when i was reading your, your comments i just remembered i suddenly got a flashback to uh because <laughs> I'd, I'd always wanted to be a journalist and my dad was a plumber never didn't really know how that would work and I just remember him once. I had a sort of Saturday job in home base, and he said that I should start, you know, maybe speaking to the managers and see if I could, you know, may, maybe I should knock this journalism thing on the head and 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 think more about home base. And there's nothing wrong with working in home base, apart from what the a fact, terrible loss to home base. Right, it's a terrible loss to home base. <laughs> Me going around saying, yeah, I'm sure you can knock that wall down. I'm not sure that would be absolutely fine. <laughs> um, uh, and actually, I, so I don't really know where it came from. My sort of, I, I, I did continue with it actually, probably in the face of my my dad's uh, advice, rather than yeah. Know, but where did yeah, where did the idea come from? Just out of completely out of the blue. Completely out of the blue. There's yeah. no moment when no. There's no. There's no. And it like from a really young age. I mean, I I was making sort of newspapers in primary school and cutting <laughs> holes out of boxes to present broadcasting times radio broadcast, to, uh, across exactly. the school <laughs> yeah, cause in fact, i've talked about this before my cousin penny uh uh was it last christmas i think was was taking the mic and saying oh do you remember when we all had to sit around and listen to you doing your shows i was like yeah it's paying my mortgage now though isn't it <laughs> <laughs> all works out right in the end uh india no, finally um let's just <laughs> let's talk about the queen as if she hasn't the poor woman hasn't suffered enough She's got Ed Sheeran, a rare appearance from Ed Sheeran outside her window. Ed Sheeran and also Cliff Richard and also Basil Brush. And I just feel, I mean, I'm not across like every single detail dream, of it. It's a cheese dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit cheese dream. It is a bit cheese dream. I do, and uh, Cliff Richard singing Happy Birthday. I mean, she's presumably had Cliff Richard singing Happy Birthday at least. 60 times out of 70 and maybe maybe it's for sort of reasons of consistency but i do feel that that maybe some younger people some more sort of relevant people than basil brush he's not a person of course he is a fox but you know <laughs> a bit of, no, a so bit at least of um, if that's what he identifies as then we should we should yes, uh respect yes, that no, we, absolutely um uh but then i suppose there's a question in there james because I presume the Queen is more likely to know who Basil Brush and Cliff Richard are rather than 
you know, yeah. Ed Sheeran and something. I mean, as soon as she looks out the window and sees Ed but Sheeran, really, she'll think, I really didn't know how he played the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does knowing who Cliff Richard is make you happy to listen to Cliff Richard on your birthday? I think it's the ultimate test of her. People always talk about her kind of stoical, patient devotion to her duty. <laughs> it's like the ultimate test of that. Well, she famously um, hates... Well, I think this is right. Anyway, the Royal Variety performance. That, that's a sort of... Yeah, I mean, she's not alone, test. is she? She's not... <laughs> I, I don't think she's expected... I mean, is she, is she physically... Are we going to be watching her watching it? Or is she going to be on the comfy sofa with a cup of tea, I really hope, for her with her feet up? I think, I think this is probably one of those things that, that can continue without her physical presence. Uh, maybe someone could just write her a note afterwards and tell her <laughs> that it happened. Uh, there's a there's a it's a it's a kind of three part thing as far as I can see. At the beginning, there's lots of kind of pageantry and five hundred horses, which sounds yes. good. So I think it's point. a four, it's a fall day thing. There's horses at the beginning that she'll love. And yeah, then... she loved the horses. Then there's the then there's then there's oh then there's the party with Cliff Richard and Basil Brush, and then there seems to be some sort of New Orleans style carnival, <laughs> which again. It seems an odd fit. Uh, and then there's um, some, there's some, there's some actoring, isn't oh, there, as well? James Martin, the cook, and Alan Titchmarsh. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. There's, isn't it Alan Titchmarsh and Tom Cruise? Oh, we're and talk, Tom Cruise. We're talking about this. Tom... Again, it's another cheese dream. So, <laughs> so there were horses, and there's Basil Brush, and Cliff Richard, and Tom Cruise. Of course there is. Do we know what Tom Cruise is doing? Uh, no. I, I mean, do we ever know what Tom Cruise is doing? I think he. I think he might be being a monarch from from you know. Oh, oh yeah, I think you're right. They're recreating. Yeah. Oh. Oh my God. Oh dear, oh dear. Indian Night and James Merritt. Then, of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Focus Group. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. It's that time of the month where we bring you Times Radio's latest focus group, asking a panel of swing voters for their take on what, how the government's doing, how the opposition's doing, and what really matters to people outside the Westminster bubble. As ever, the focus group was run by James Johnson, in association with the global communications firm Keck CNC. And James joins me now. Morning, James. Morning. Let's start with our uh, usual caveat. Explain what a focus group is and why it's different to polling. So a focus group is a conversation, basically, between around six to eight voters. Um, it's not intended to be representative. So for that, you want to poll a much larger number of people, um, like uh, you see in the voting intention polls, 1,000, 2,000 people. This is instead meant to be a deep dive, really, into the sort of voters that political parties, that companies, that whoever might be interested really want to hear from. And here we're talking to swing voters, um, people that voted Conservative and Labour in 2019 um, and are now undecided about how they'd vote. And the people we spoke to this month uh, were from Manchester, Wolverhampton and Bristol. And like I say, not intended to crystallise exactly what every swing voter is thinking, but gives us a sense of what they're sort of thinking under the surface of how they answer questions in polls. And it's worth saying, Max, one health warning on this one is that we had a few 
uh, people who didn't turn up, they must have had better things to do. So the group does skew a little bit slightly more towards the Conservative 2019 voters this time, as a couple of those Labour 2019 voters were amongst those dropouts. And we should explain that you're, this isn't just like a random thing that you do for us. You used to do polling for uh, Number 10 under Theresa May, and you do this all the time. This is your job. You're constantly doing focus groups. So you can tell us, is this out of line with what you're picking up in other focus groups too? Absolutely, yep. It's uh, it's a it's a glamorous life of holiday in conference rooms and <laughs> zooms and people's front rooms uh, across the UK, and we're doing it in America as well. But uh, uh, yeah, no, exactly. We can we can help to contextualise these because you should never read too much into one focus group. Very good. Okay, here we go then. As always, we started off by asking how uh, the focus group thinks the government is doing. It's very misleading at the moment. It just doesn't seem very organised. It's a lot of false promises and. To me, I'm, I'm quite concerned, to be honest, mate. They, they just seem disorganised, to be honest. You know, everything has gone up. The cost of living, just in general, for everything has gone up. Sometimes it feels like they rush decisions very quickly and don't think about it in the long run for everyone else. They don't seem to be taking control of anything. They don't seem to be... <laughs> sounds a bit daft, but you don't seem to get much bang for your buck from them. They've inherited an absolute mess of a, a situation with COVID and with... The war, the price of living and everything, I, I think, I, I don't know how anybody would do any better. But I, I think on the whole, they, they're not doing that bad a job because I don't believe there is anybody else out there that could do much better at the moment. I think everything's going up, but obviously your wages are not going up. I just think, I just think everybody's going to really struggle, especially with council tax and gas and electrics going up tremendous. I don't think they're doing a lot to help people with that, apart from this £150 they're giving them as council tax. And I don't think that's a great deal off your council tax. So, James, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that we've uh, we've had ever since we've been doing this, about almost the last two years, but actually a sort of, well, everyone's rubbish seems to be the overwhelming mood. Yeah, and I'd say this is more in line with those sort of post you know, the 2022 focus groups that we've done rather than last year, where people don't start with the benefit of the doubt. A couple of people might get onto it, but actually the, the sort of initial reaction is hostility, feeling everything's in a bit of a mess, um, not feeling particularly excited. You're quite right. It's not, uh, you know, completely um, terminal. People certainly don't feel like there's a clear alternative uh, available, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, but they're certainly sort of not as happy as they were in the last couple of years. OK, and then you ask them uh, for to give a grade to the government on how the government's doing. You've got a D, a C, a D, a D, a C and a D, which is not a, a bringing um, endorsement. I suppose that's possibly uh, where everyone is. Uh, let's uh, let's move on then to some specifics. You asked uh, how they think Boris Johnson's doing. My opinion on him's changed, unfortunately. I've always thought he's all right, Boris. Um middle of the road. I think he did do the first side of the pandemic. He did take, I use the expression again, take the ball by the horns and, you know, with his mate Chris Whitting and stuff like that, they, they made some good decisions and they were quite firm and they helped things. But then obviously you hear stories about partying <laughs> and your opinion changes. And I think since then, it's almost like he's thinking, oh, I don't know, I can be bothered anymore. When Boris first came on the scene, he he had likable traits or certain views that I agreed with. But since the whole like pandemic and all the parties and stuff, like the amount of parties there were, you know, the amount of money that was spent on these parties, I don't think he's been held accountable for his actions. It just seems like lies upon lies. Done done a brilliant job when it was going through the pandemic and everything else. And you know, been I think it would have been a hard job for anyone that coming to to that job at that particular time. We all make mistakes. That's how I see it. Well, I think he did a good job at first, but and then I started to think he was like clowning about, you know, not seeming to do what he, what he should be doing. Just think he just sort of lost it a bit. But I think I think he's just lost his way a little, or the perception is that he's lost his way. Um, that we're we're focusing on silly little things when we should be focusing on on some serious things. So it's not great for Boris Johnson, James, but with, with still with a route back, not yet completely terminal. 
Yeah, certainly these voters a little bit more positive than some of the other uh, focus groups we've been doing, where you know that 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 sort of fury about the parties really does translate into a sort of a, a brand bonfire for Boris Johnson, really. But you know, look, these voters are conservative voters in twenty nineteen, um, uh, and they're, they're not exactly elated, are they? And I think that it, the the interesting thing there is that they all sort of tell a story about their shift. Um, and that's usually a bad sign for a politician because they've sort of got a story about their demise, in the, about his demise in their own heads. And, it's, and it is the parties as that hinge moment. They think he did well in the pandemic. And, you know, if you rewind to our focus groups uh, last year, you can see you know, that coming through then as well. But they're now sort of saying he's lost his way. He's not quite as strong as we thought. He's not really sort of got, got, got a vision. And the hinge moment they're using to sort of justify that is, is, is that party's moment. So, yeah, certainly, certainly seems to be wounded by that um, in a way that he was not uh, earlier in the year or last year. Well, let's focus on that, in, uh, on their feelings towards Boris Johnson over Partygate, in particular the fact he's now received his first fixed penalty notice. Let's take a listen to what the panel has to say about that. I just feel like it's, it's a lot of time wasting around this whole investigating and looking into it when everyone knows what he's done. There's proof, like, he had, like, 17 parties, so find him 17 times over. It's that simple, and it's the accountability, and what annoys me about him is the whole, I didn't understand the rules. You, you, you stood on live TV and told everyone the rules so that's just the poorest excuse i've ever heard during the pandemic he quite frequently on national television stood in front of the nation to say you must stay at home do not visit visit vulnerable people elderly people do not break the rules and then he's gone under what he's done we all make mistakes but like i said he has done an all right job through the pandemic and i think it's going to boil down to like the energy prices and everything else that's going on can I just come in there very quickly? Sorry, I know we're sort of... T- but like where Darren said there, oh, yeah, we all make mistakes. Fair enough, we do. But not God knows how many times. Well, it's just upsetting you never invited me, you know what I mean? I know, well, I've missed out there, didn't we? And I don't really give a monkey's whether he's had a party or not. As long as he's kept 60-odd million of us safe and well, I think, you know, he can have a bit of cake as far as I'm concerned. What he didn't do was when he was asked, did he do it? He should have put his hand up and said, do you know what? I think I might have done, you know, and, and I'm very sorry, but let's move on. He, the, the, the error he made was by right. trying to push it down the road, kick it down the road, which he's still doing. I think that's the issue. My issue isn't that he had parties. Yeah, it is in one sense, but it's the lying. Because you've lied, it makes people question but question your character and other things you might be doing. The police have denied releasing any more until after the local elections. I mean, that in itself sounds dodgy doesn't it james johnson's still still here interesting that james it's not i mean some people are still unhappy about the parties uh that went on in number 10 but actually it's it's also the handling and this is if you speak to tory mps that's the thing that they're really cross about is the way it's been handled the way it's dragged on for so long the obfuscation the changing of the lines that you know arguing that black is white that's the voters could really see what's going on there uh, 100%. And that's that segment, I think, really crystallises where the public are right now on Partygate. Some anger about the parties, um, one or two people saying, you know, let's move on. But actually, a lot of people unable to get past that frustration about uh, the, the cover up as they see it. Um, and that's the really key thing here that, they've, that, that has really sort of uh, cemented um, their negative view of Boris Johnson on this issue. You can see the alternate timeline um, where, you know, full confession in early January um, and and then Boris Johnson may have been able to move on with these voters. Um, but they feel, and I use a, a, a quote that you know, somebody used, you know, they feel taken for fools, as somebody somebody put it. And that is a, has a lot more of a sort of gut punch than perhaps some of the other stuff. The other interesting thing in there, Matt, was this, there is also this sense that, um, and I think one of the uh, female uh, respondents made this point, um, that the sort of sense of wasting time, the sense of not focusing on other issues, we obviously hear that argument a lot from Conservative MPs and defenders of Number 10, but she was squarely blaming Boris Johnson for that, a sense that he sort of you know, knew what he'd done, but was still expending a lot of money on the investigating to just try and keep long grassing it. So she was blaming the government and Boris Johnson for the process lasting a long time. Um, and it does just show that that move on argument amongst Conservative MPs might not be quite as powerful 
as they think, because people do turn around and say, well, that's Boris Johnson's fault. Interestingly, while we've been uh, talking, Paula Sovage, who's a political sociologist uh, in uh, Bristol and uh, also for the UK uh, and a changing Europe, she's just tweeted saying, this focus group seems to have been coached by my mum. It's not what you did, it's that you lied about it. And that's, that, that's, that, that's sort of really, that sort of sums up in a, in a single sentence the attitude of lots of people there. Well, of course, it's, it's always not, the cover-up, isn't it, Matt? It's, it's always the cover-up. Cover it's always the cover-up, that's what people say. Uh, of course, it's not just Boris Johnson who has been fine, also Rishi Sunak too. And over the last almost two years, he's been very popular with the focus groups, although this year it's been waning. Let's catch up with where our uh, panel of swing voters are on Rishi Sunak. He is so wealthy. He is so far separated from any of us. I think it's very difficult for him to ever be able to know what it's like to be a moment in our in our shoes. A multi multi millionaire living a life of privilege. He's he's missing the mark a bit. His lifestyle and stuff doesn't isn't relatable to other people. Like on paper, yeah, he, professionally he's great and he's got this, that, and the other. But experience wise and like life skills. I don't think he fully appreciates people's situations in real life. Prior to the revelations that have come about, you know, in, over the last um, month or a few weeks or so, I thought he was doing a, you know, a pretty good job. It's just that now it's come to light. You know, I didn't know he had properties all around the world and, and his wife was a multi-multi-millionaire and all that, those sort of things. But that has put a different slant on him for me. Yeah, I agree with that, because as soon as I found out that his wife wasn't paying her taxes and that, I thought, well, all the money they've got, why on earth would she not pay her taxes? These are things that normal, average people like us have to pay, so I don't feel like they should get away with it. James, what a turnaround in the views of Rishi Sunak. That, uh, and what's really interesting is that, that I mean, clearly it's a different panel each month. It's not the same people. But repeatedly we had, you know, he's a great guy. He's done everything he possibly could. He explains things really well. I really like him was the sort of recurring theme. And now it's the same guy who did all that stuff. But now they know about his wealth. That seems to have really changed people's view of him. Yeah, and I think it's something slightly different as well. It's like, you know, in the focus groups beforehand, people knew or had a hunch he was wealthy. Um but it didn't really matter much because he was seen to be, you know, on their side. Um, but when things happen, whether it was the tax rises, um, whether it was, you know, filling up the filling up the car at the petrol station that wasn't his, um, something changes for voters, and then that stuff really matters, um, and it then becomes a proof point of why that politician isn't on their side. And I think you see that happen happen here, obviously, with the extra ammunition of, of of these of these stories about taxes coming out as well so yeah a real a real change and look one of Rishi Sunak's brand strengths was that he was in touch with the public and now the first thing they say uh, is that he's out of touch so it is quite a turnaround indeed and I mean of course all one of the backgrounds as you were saying is the cost of living you know there's a cost of living crisis as well and his reaction to that and where people feel that's falling short they now see that through the prism of what they know about him personally but I was really interested you asked the group who they think is to blame. Because there's so many factors, whether it's domestic or international, but who is to blame for the rising cost of living? I don't feel like it's necessarily the government's fault, but I feel like they do have a responsibility, as in like places, countries, companies we're working with. I think it's been caused really by the pandemic, that everybody's been having to be helped out and help businesses out on that. And I just think now they're trying to claw it all back. I'm not too sure. Maybe uh, the war or maybe come out of the EU and everything's just become a little bit more expensive. Obviously, the war that's going on at the moment is a big thing because we do import a lot of our energy from there. It's something that they really need to focus on, creating more of our own energy, whether that be renewable or nuclear. I just hope that somebody somewhere is able to look back at these companies that are putting on all these extra charges on us and if, for whatever reason, their profit is going through the roof on the back of us paying extra money, that doesn't seem right to me. If all these companies are getting rich on the of us all having pricing, that, that's, not, that's not right. In my opinion, the government should do something about that with all these different energy companies, all these providers to say, right, you can't charge that. We're putting a cap on what you charge. But they should dig deeper into the pot and... Not making ordinary ordinary people. People that have got plenty of money can afford to pay it back, but not everyday working people that just about make ends meet. That was, uh, I mean, it's fascinating, James, isn't it? That we, we don't always um, sort of take that step back and think, well, the cost of living crisis is clearly an issue, but voters, I suppose part of the problem is 
different people have different perceptions of what is the cause of it. And therefore, the government's ability to answer all those concerns is is difficult. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's this constellation of different issues they blame, different factors they they think are responsible for the for the rising cost of living. Look, if you're looking at that purely from a political point of view, um, and you're the government, you're probably thinking, okay, um, there are other structural issues to to blame there. Well, yeah. And, and, uh, so, what if you were advising Boris Johnson or, or Wishy Sunak now? What what could they be doing, or is this actually a, a sort of insolvable problem? Well, that, that's the difficulty, isn't it? And that's the thing. Although that they, although they're not just single-handedly blaming the government, um, they are saying um, that they do want to see government action. And it felt from the focus group like there is an expectation now, after furlough and after such an interventionist government for about eighteen months, two years, for the government to to act. And that puts quite a lot of sort of you know onus on the government to do things. Um, look, I mean, clearly people are feeling a lot of pressure, so this can't just be a political calculation. Um, the only thing that people are aware of, alongside lots of being being other reasons, is that they do still feel like there's a very large debt, um, and they do still feel like that large debt has to be paid off. That sort of Cameron Osborne you know, talking about the deficit for for six years um, continually <laughs> has still made an impression on voters. Um, so uh, that appeal to look, we've got a national challenge here. We've got to face. We've got to get that debt down. May help a little bit. But look, there's no doubt that the government's starting from a weaker position here because people are expecting much more now after they've seen all that government help during the pandemic. Well, we've done Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, so I suppose we should do the other, the other side now. These are their thoughts on the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. I don't really know much about him, to be honest. I've heard the name. Don't know a lot. Sorry. Never really interested me. Never really wanted to, to follow him. I don't really know a lot <laughs> about him, to I just think he seems very full of himself, you know, as of just as of his own importance. That's why I'm not that keen on him. As you would expect from most opposition leaders, you know, he's, he's completely opposed to anything. You know, sometimes I think he just does it. It, it gives the impression he's just doing it to be awkward. And I just think it's the way he, he speaks. And because I've watched him like when he's been going against Boris and I've been watching what they've been saying. It's like he can't wait to put him down all the time. You know, I think I think it's very difficult. It, it's it's that almost that X factor, isn't it? It's something that you, you either have or you don't have that makes you appeal to the people that are going to vote. And I just, for whatever reason, he hasn't got that likability, that X factor that he, you need to be the a leader. Uh, that's what I think. I think he's not very likable. And yet when you've got the other side of Boris, Boris is likable, even though he does some daft things. It's not, I mean, it's not great news for Keir Starmer, that, James. No, it's not. And this is really the uh, the real positive that the Conservatives still have um, as they look ahead of the next election, that Keir Starmer has not sealed the deal with these voters. A lot of don't knows, a lot of shrugs um, and those who do have an opinion feeling pretty negative. And you heard the reasons there and that X factor point. I mean, I think that chap there just did, did crystallise what we've been saying, Matt, throughout all of these, all the commentary on these focus groups, that um, he hasn't sort of grabbed the voters' attention. And that feeds through to how voters then view whether he feel whether he's strong or not, whether he can get things done or not, and so on. It is worth saying, of course, in the polls, that Keir Starmer is leading Boris Johnson on all of those metrics, um, on things like strong, on things like get, get things done, on things like has a vision. Um, but the swing voters, perhaps, not quite not quite as convinced. I mean, it is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Given the hammering that Boris Johnson's had, given the state of the economy, given uh, Partygate, it's sort of... A, uh, and given how, actually, Keir Starmer to, you know, has been all over that, um, it's astonishing that, that he doesn't seem to be doing any better. The people are still saying, I don't know much about him. Yeah, look, we may well be back in a world where it's the least unpopular politician uh, that manages to <laughs> win the voters' minds. Uh, and maybe they don't need to feel like they really like him. Um, you know, maybe they need to not like uh, Boris Johnson enough to then be able to, to swap over to him. So look, I still think that there are real dangers for the Conservative Party on this. And a point I've been making is that they don't need a sort of John Major versus Tony Blair style wipeout to lose power. You know, the Conservatives can lose their majority while they're ahead uh, in votes. So even by just being a stark contrast to Boris Johnson, yeah. um, Keir Starmer could could win them over. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're, he's certainly not the Tony Blair. Let's put it that way. Okay, let's um, uh, let's just move on because clearly one of the, the stories of this week has once again been sexism in Parliament. Whether it's Angela Rayner's legs or this Tory MP watching porn in the House of Commons chamber, let's see what they had to say about that. 
I just feel like it's just another drama to sort of bring up. I, d- I don't feel like her person. I don't feel like she's done that. Sometimes it's just media. They need to just keep up with storylines. And I think that's what that is to me. I think there's a lot more important things going on than whether she crossed her legs left or right or whatever. It's made her feel very insecure about it. I watched her, like, her have an interview on the Lorraine show this morning. I feel like maybe because it's to do with Boris Johnson, it's to sort of like highlight someone else and take the limelight off of other situations and change the storylines. I just don't understand what. why would she want to entice him by doing it? I don't, I don't understand what it is. It's like as though they're all trying to say silly things about Boris again. I don't understand it at all. If that had happened 12 months ago, it probably wouldn't have been picked up. It sounds to me like since what's gone on with the allegations of Boris and his parties and this irresponsible behaviour within government, anything is being picked up now. There we are, uh, James. I mean, you did you did point out that the health warning with this was it slightly skew it did skew slightly more to twenty nineteen Tory voters than Labour voters, but they're they're quite just quite cynical about this sort of froth, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they're, they're sort of um, look. They, they clearly uh, they clearly think it's an important issue in that they've heard about it. But I think what this tells us it tells us less about their views on sexism, but more about their general levels of distrust about politics as a whole. Um, really interesting that rather than go straight into a discussion of, you know, the merits and demerits of the story and whether they're on Angela Rain's side or not, they saw this as a sort of um, story that was there to distract from Boris Johnson and from the parties. And when I pushed on that, um, when I said, well, who's they, who's doing the distracting? They said, well, government working with the media to get to get the story out of the news. <laughs> so it's an interesting reminder that, you know, the sort of the context of everything going on is often seen through the prism of the big thing that they're that they're seeing at the time, and that is for them the parties uh, and Boris Johnson. So a wider lesson about trust there, I think, and how and how uh, voters view the media. Well, we will uh, we'll continue our uh, look at the focus group, including uh, we've had lots of messages in James of people saying um, how do they do the panel know so little about politics. Turns out that, that that's just normal people. I'll ask you more about that in detail, James. We'll turn our attention to the possible uh, alternative Tory leaders. If you're an alternative Tory leader <laughs> contender uh, listening, it, I'd, I'd maybe go make a cup of tea or something for a minute because you're not going to like it. James, before we dive into the, the last set of clips, so many messages. Why do your focus group panel always seemingly know little about politics? I find it incomprehensible that people can't know who the leader of the opposition is. Is this level of knowledge typical? I despair how shallow people are when assessing our political leaders in the depressing age of superficial social media. Uh, who the F of the panel, says someone else. Um, they are, <laughs> I mean, you can answer that one if you want to, James. Well, look, I mean, uh, this is the this is the gulf between Twitter and 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 uh, and, and, uh, normal, and normal voters. Um, uh, people are not paying attention to this stuff uh, day in day out. I actually think, by the way, there's been an increase in political interest over the last five years. Um, people are a lot more plugged in than they used to be, uh, but still still very low levels. And look. Uh, I might just suggest to uh, to some of those uh, some of those uh, people texting in um, that if you don't try and understand the voters and level with them on their terms, uh, then you're probably not going to persuade them of your cause. I think wise words there. Right then, this is the bit I've been looking forward to. Uh, we've talked about Boris Johnson. We've talked about Partygate. Uh, one of the you know, and and how Rishi Sunak's uh, reputation has taken a bit of a nosedive. Let's turn to some of the alternative leadership challenges. And James in the focus group last night brought up pictures of potential candidates to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and asked in a quick fire round whether anyone knew anything about them and what their feelings were. Let's take a listen. Sajid Javid. Recognise the face and the name, don't know much about him. My impression is he jumped shit when it started to get a bit difficult. I'd say quite smart, level-headed, but maybe just a bit young and experienced. Do you know, I don't really know much about him. Um, I recognise the face, but I don't really know anything about him. Nadine Zahawi. I can't think of one standout thing that he's done. Don't know. Don't know anything about him, sorry. Never heard of him. No, that's the first time I've ever heard of him. 
Jeremy Hunt. I don't know. <laughs> I've heard of him, but I don't know a great, a great deal about him. I don't even know what part he plays. I don't recognise him at all. I've heard of him, but don't know anything about him. He had his chance to become leader, and he, he, he didn't quite cut the mustard. Liz Truss. Briefly heard the name a few times, but don't, don't know anything, sorry. I've heard the name and heard of her. I've heard the name and heard, heard of her, but I don't know anything about her. If she does what we all hope she is able to do over the next month or two, she, she is going to be a credible, very credible Prime Minister one day. Tom Tugendhat. Not being funny, I've never heard of him. No, definitely never heard of him. Never heard of him. Nope. Yes, no, not really. Penny Morden. No. I've heard the name, I recognise the face, but I'm, I don't believe she's a minister, but if she is, I'm not sure what she does. No, don't recognise her, I've never heard the name. No, never heard the name. I've never heard the name, I don't recognise her either. Ben Wallace. Sorry, no. 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 Michael Go. I think I recognise his face, but again, I don't know what. Same as Matt, recognise the face, but nothing else comes to mind. He is very statesman-like, and you know, he is the, uh, you know, if, if you could roll Boris and Michael Gove into one man, he would be the perfect leader, really. Boris Johnson's more likeable than him. Um, I've heard the name, but I don't really know a great deal about him. Wow. Wow, wow, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Uh, James, another reminder as you know, <laughs> uh, refer, you know, referring back to those messages, who are these people? These are people who, they are amazingly engaged on some issues. You know, cost of living, party gate, Boris Johnson and all of that. I mean, Sajid Javid's too young and inexperienced. He's 52 and he's been in the cabinet on and off since 2014. Uh, they don't know who Jerry Hunt is. They don't know who Liz Truss is. Uh, no, 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 no from uh, Ben Wallace. I mean, can you take any positive out of that for any of those involved? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get the uh, thought of some of our Twitter uh, followers on that comment about Boris Johnson and Michael Gove rolled into one would be the perfect politician. I imagine that might might, might infuriate some. Um, look, uh, it was uh, it is just that reminder that you know voters don't know this 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 lineup of faces. Um, they don't know who these people are. Um, now, on the one hand, that means there's not a clear public favourite um, to take over from Boris Johnson, um, and I expect that is you know holding back some of their some of the, the levels of hostility there might be if there were a very clear choice. On the other hand, though, I think that if you are these candidates, there's actually something quite positive to take from this. Almost everyone's got a blank slate, even people like Michael Gove, who've been around for quite a long time. Um, so even though the favourability ratings of a lot of these people might be quite low, actually, on the basis of this, a lot of the swing voters are sort of open to actually reappraising you again. That's and really she... interesting. So, it, and actually, given that whoever might replace, but it were Boris Johnson to go, whoever might replace them is, got to, is going to be up against the fact that Tories will have been in power for 12, 13, 14 years by the time of the next election. And doing what Boris Johnson successfully did post Theresa May of completely resetting the government and then claiming to have nothing to do with, the, with anything that's happened in the past decade the next person's going to have to do that even more. And so if nobody knows who they are, that's probably better. Yeah, it's perfectly possible. And every new leader gets a honeymoon period. Every new leader gets to define themselves uh, on, on in their own terms. Um, so, yeah, if I'm these leadership candidates and I'm getting a no, 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 I probably don't want to have those don't knows continuing during a leadership contest. Um, but uh, actually, at this stage, I'd see that as a relatively open invitation. And like I've said before, the Conservative brand is not as wounded as Boris Johnson's brand. So you could see a new leader actually being able to take the party in a different direction quite quickly, especially in light of those Labour and Keir Starmer weaknesses that we've talked about. Very good, very good. Well, let's go back to, uh, let's round off then with the party leaders who are slightly better known. Uh, this, um, you always ask them to sort of, if they could say, if they could bend the ear of the party leaders, what would they say? This is what the panel would send as a message to Keir Starmer. I would say to stop um, trying to make Boris Johnson look stupid because he's making himself look stupid. I would say to him to create a team of passionate, experienced people that aren't so professionally trained, like more of, experienced backgrounds like create a team that maybe he oversees but they're more in control maybe i think you know not to be afraid to join boris in some of his ideas you know don't be you know don't try and shoot everything down 
not everything has to be yin and yang. We we can agree sometimes. I'd say yeah, make yourself more more well known. Join in. There we are. Um, you don't need it, yin and yang. Let's agree sometimes. So that's the message to Keir Starmer. This is what the panel had to say to Boris Johnson. I would say stop clowning about and concentrate on the people that need his help. Yeah, put put this cake gate thing to bed and, you know, let's move on. Yeah, in future, if you approach, just be honest and get back to how you were and get, get things done with the things that need to be done now. Be accountable for your actions and try and, like, zone in and properly focus on what is best for this country just be open and honest and and that's it so there we are james be open and honest if only uh boris johnson had thought of that <laughs> gonna say it's an easy it's a straightforward task there um i followed up and asked do you think he will do that some said they think they thought he could turn it around uh others said you know what after this party situation i'm i'm, I'm not sure he will so uh yeah it's a uh it's a bit school report really isn't it um but clearly uh the it's that honesty and that lying point that's really got through to them on their view of boris johnson so, James, if you were in number 10, as you were with uh, Theresa May, if you were there right now, uh, what would you be advising Boris Johnson to do? Goodness, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, look, I, this is this was a focus group that was on the more positive side for Boris Johnson uh, than, than than a lot of the others we've, we've been doing, where that brand damage is still really, really significant. Um, all I, I mean, from, if you're the Conservative Party, uh, I, I still think it's very much within their electoral interests to... Uh, look at another look at another leader for the reasons uh, we've spoken about because that brand is so tarnished Um, if you're in number 10 though and you're Boris Johnson I think the thing that all the voters said they really wanted to see was you know get onto the real issues that matter get onto these real issues deliver something and it's no good just saying we need to get onto the real issues they need to really show a few two or three real flagship things on things that really matter to voters childcare, housing cost of living whatever it might be, something to persuade these voters that actually they are getting things done and they are focused on them. Not just talking about it, but doing it. James Johnson, brilliant to speak to you as ever. Um, thank you for, once again, um, almost breaking the text machine with so many messages of people saying, who are these people? Are they allowed to vote? I'm not convinced everyone should be allowed to vote. This would be some sort of test. <laughs> Anyway, there we are. Um, uh, Times Radio listeners, welcome to the general public. Uh, always good to hear from uh, James there. James Johnson there uh, bringing us the Times Radio focus group with Kex CNC. We'll be back with that again uh, next month. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. 